you'll now turn out, take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, I will read chapter 1. The Israelites Oppressed. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, God and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kind of work in the fields, and in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the kings of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave the order to all the people, Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andy. Um, we're going to start a new series through the book of Exodus. Um, we'll go until, I think, chapter 13, um, mm-hmm. until the, the Passover passage uh, that will go um, coincide with Easter and Good Friday. So um, please do look forward to, uh, to come each week. If you can read ahead, um, we'll, read, uh, we'll, we'll preach from Exodus chapter 2 next week. Um, but let's pray now that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for your word, and we pray now that I will speak um, only the truth of your word, and this truth will come and build our church up um, to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, is a refrain that's repeated throughout the book of Exodus. And in many ways, that really is the theme of the rest of the book. The book of Exodus is about knowing Yahweh as our God. 
God rescues because he wants us to know, he wants the Israelites to know that Yahweh is their God, and he wants the whole world to know that Yahweh is their God. He brings judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians because Pharaoh and the Egyptians think that they are gods, that, that they worship different, um, uh, they, they, they worship idols. He reveals his mighty power over the nations so that the whole world, the whole nations would come to know Yahweh as God. And after Exodus, he reveals God's law to the, um, to the Israelites so that they might act, they might act according to God's character so the whole nations could see that Yahweh is God and Israel is God's people. The Exodus event was the salvation event of the Old Testament. And this is the event that the Old Testament writers will look back again and again to see that Yahweh really is God and there is no other. But Israel wasn't always a nation. Israel, perhaps better uh, known uh, by his other name, Jacob, entered Egypt as a refugee. Remember, there was no food in the Canaan, in in, in land of Canaan, in, in Egypt. But God blessed his son, Joseph, to save not only the Egyptians, uh, but to bring the, the, his own family. He rose, to the, uh, he rose to be the second in command and brought his entire family to Egypt. And do you remember what he said after uh, he comes and his brothers come uh, to his brothers? He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. It's the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. Chapter 50, uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 and 21. Joseph forgives his brother and says, all the evil things that you did, actually God intended it for good, even though you intended it for evil. And as he dies, he tells his brothers that I'm going to be buried here, but one day God will bring Israel out of Egypt. And when, they, when, when he does, please uh, uh, bring my, uh, uh, my bones out and bury me in Israel. That's how Genesis ends. And that's how the book of Exodus starts, with the recollection of the 12 sons of Jacob entering. Right? So we have the 12 names of Jacob. And the number of his descendants in verse 4, 70. The 70 survived the famine, but they weren't quite a nation. And once again, we do need to look back to Genesis to get a sense of what Exodus is about. Uh, that was the promise uh, made in Genesis to Abraham in chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. You will be a great nation, he said. And again in chapter 17, you will be the father of many nations. I'll make you very fruitful. I'll make a nation of you, nations of you, and kings will come to you, come from you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give it as an everlasting possessions to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. But despite the promise, once again, at the end of, ex, uh, at the end of Genesis and beginning of Exodus, um, there is only 70. And instead of possessing the entire land of Canaan, three generations down the road, there are still aliens in the land of Egypt. But here, in the land of Egypt, in the most unlikeliest of place, we see God's promise to Abraham beginning to be fulfilled. Take a look at what happens after Joseph dies. Uh, that generation dies in verse 7. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. 
they became exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly and they became so numerous that the whole land was filled with them. The whole language actually recalls God's original plan when God created humanity, right? Um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land, right? This is God's plan being fulfilled in the land of Egypt. And again and again, that theme is repeated in our text. If you look down, that word is repeated again and again. Numerous is repeated in verse 9 and 10. Multiplied is found in verse 12. People increased and became so numerous, even became, uh, became even more numerous in verse 20. And in order to get what God is doing, we also need to see how improbable this multiplication was. You know, as soon as they start increasing, a great opposition arises. A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt, verse 8. He knows nothing of how Joseph saved his country, made Egypt actually really rich, Pharaoh really rich. Um, and he's afraid of Israelites precisely because God is blessing Israelites, because they are becoming such a great uh, nation, uh, great people in number. So he's afraid that they would rebel against him. So he starts to put slave masters over them and force them into labor, slave labor, in verse 11. And, but here is how the narrative goes. Look at the result of what Pharaoh does in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. There's no reason why oppression should end in multiplication and, and fruitfulness. In fact, it's the opposite, right? Op- oppression should come with stress, maybe less fertility, more debts. But ironically, that's not what happens. More oppression, more multiplication. So the Egyptians doubled down on the slave labor. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortal with mortar, mortal. Mortar, sorry, I spelled it wrong in my mortar. And with all kinds of work in the, in the fields. And as if that weren't enough, Pharaoh orders what we might call a state-sponsored genocide today. He orders um, uh, Shifra and Pua, the midwives, to kill all the boys as they're born. And these two were probably head mid- midwives in charge of many, many more midwives as there may, uh, must have been more, but the intention is clear. He's going to oppose what God is doing. God wants to multiply uh, the Jewish people, but he's going to go engage in systemic uh, genocide and try to extinguish and control what God is doing. But you know the story. The God-fearing women disobey Pharaoh. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. But for now, take a look at what results in verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. It doesn't make sense. If you're, if you're a young couple, young Jewish couple in that time, would you have babies under that circumstance? You know, there's no ultrasound. There's no way to find out whether your baby will be boy or a girl. And there is 50% chance that the baby that you gave birth to will be taken away and actually be killed. Would you have babies in that circumstance? But just the threat of that, I think, would have curbed um, the enthusiasm for family growth. But that's not what happens. The people increased and they became even more numerous. Not only that, 
Take a look at verse 20, 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. The midwives were supposed to be the agents that decreased the number of people, uh, number of Jewish people. But actually, God blesses them and gave them families. They become means by which the Jewish people increased even more in number. This, the whole message is very clear, isn't it? No matter what the Pharaoh does, no matter what people do, God's will will not be opposed. No matter what kind of scheme Pharaoh puts in to Egypt, uh, in, uh, in to, uh, to curb uh, this population growth, this will not be because God, this is God's will. It was time for God to fulfill that promise to Abraham. You know, count the number of stars. Your descendants will be that many. That was God's will. So they multiplied and increased in number greatly. The land was filled with them because God willed it. And any opposition would be meaningless. But you might ask, if that was God's will, why the oppression? Why the hardship? Why did the opposition happen in the first place? Why did the Pharaoh... Um, who did not know anything about Joseph, uh, why was he put in power? Why was he so cruel? Why did the order of infanticide necessary? Why was the hardship to God's people necessary? And I'm sure you've asked these questions yourselves in your own suffering. Why is suffering right now for me necessary? If this is God's will for me to uh, fulfill God's, uh, um, for for God to do these things, uh, why is it that we need to suffer? Why did God's people need to suffer? On level, on on one level, the answer is, I don't know. We the creatures can't know the mind of God. And this is, once again, a repeated theme in the Bible, isn't it? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. But this is also true. Often as we look back at what God has done, we can, make, we, we can maybe make a guess. We can see maybe why the hardship was necessary. And I think we can see that here in this plan as well. Here, it's not a big stretch to think that the racist policy of the Egyptians actually drove the Jewish people to each other, that it had a means of preserving the Jewish people as a nation. You know, if they were accepted into the Jewish, uh, I mean, into the Egyptian society and they became comfortable, it might have been that they started to intermarry, they started to feel comfortable and take in the gods of the Egyptians. But that's not what happened. Would the Israelites have left Egypt without suffering? That's another question. Actually, I don't know. As we'll see later on, it's hard enough to drive the Israelites out of Egypt when they are suffering, when it was so hard for them. They start complaining already. It was the, their only home and the life they had ever known. As a preacher, Charles Spurgeon says the same. He says, in all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have, uh, they would have me- been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they were quite willing to be Egypt- Egyptianized. To a large degree, they began to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt. And the last point is really important. This isn't about race. God isn't afraid that the Jewish people would become somehow Egyptians 
But the problem isn't race. Problem is idolatry. Becoming a part of Egyptian society meant buying into their theology, accepting gods uh, of Egypt as their own gods. Losing Jewish identity meant equal to losing Yahweh as their God, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Might have been, might this have been the reason behind their suffering, to unite people as, as one people. And certainly, I think this is the reason why Pharaoh here is not named. There are a couple of uh, possibilities of who this uh, Pharaoh might be. But this Pharaoh in this story is unnamed. This isn't a specific king. I think the message is, it, it, this isn't about one Pharaoh, specific Pharaoh that oppressed the Israelites. What's on trial is the entire Egyptian theology and their belief in their gods. Pharaoh himself claimed to be the son of Ray, the sun god. Uh, the son of uh, Ray was the, the, was the head god of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. So when Pharaoh enslaves the Jewish people, what he's saying is, he's making a theological statement. He's saying, actually, Yahweh, your God, is not God. I am your God, and I have power over you. But son of Ray is no match for Yahweh God, as we see in verse 12. More he tried to oppress, more he oppressed, more God multiplied. More he tried to stump God's will for them to become a great nation, more God's will was going to be done. More he tried to oppose God, more he was frustrated. Verse 20, more, he ordered a genocide, but people increased and became great in number. Suffering and oppression became the means God uses to display his power, to say to the whole world, actually, you are powerless, but because I am God, Yahweh, and there is no other. What an encouragement I hope you feel. Don't you think, whatever you're going through now, God is God. And in your life, God's will be done. Always. His power will be displayed. Always. The gift of, and we talked about singleness yesterday in 20s and 30s, gift of singleness is a gift. It's God's gift for them right now. Uh, no matter what you are going through, even if this, you're struggling with it, this is what God's, God has in store for you. God's will is being done. You'll be shown as God's through it all. If not in this world, in the next, God's power will be displayed through them all. And of course, this is what we see in the history of the church. Tertullian of the second century wrote famously, blood of the martyrs is the seed of a church as he saw his fellow Christians die. But under that persecution, the church grew. This was also true of the Chinese church in the past century as Mao sought to drive Christianity out of China. The church spread like wildfire. One sociology in Purdue University in the U.S. says in, in 13 years, in, by 2030, China will have more people going to church on Sundays than America, the, the, the biggest Christian nation. There will be more Christians there. No matter what people do, the church spreads because this is God's will. We see this happening now among the Middle Eastern people. There have been so many reports of refugees going to Europe and converting 
People from Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, Eritrea, people who would have never heard the gospel are driven out of their homes. But there in Europe and there in many different places are finding Christ, finding Jesus. The nicest kill and intimidate in order to drive these people away from Christianity. Well, more they oppressed, more they multiplied. God's will cannot be thwarted. Of course, this doesn't mean that suffering is any less horrific or the evil they experience any less evil. But our suffering and the presence of evil in this world have a way of finding, driving us to God, to God's hand. And the suffering and evil also becomes a means by which God displays his faithfulness and his power over them. Perhaps this is the reason why God allowed Israel to suffer like this. And perhaps this is the reason why you might be suffering, you might be going through whatever you are going through. But will you remember God in your hardship, in times of bitterness, as it was for the Israelites? Will you turn to him and wait for his will to be done? Because God is God and there is no other. If God's will, if God wills it, it's done. And if he doesn't, then it's not. The only thing then in our lives uh, we need to fear is God and not anything else. Isn't that right? I take a look at the two main characters in this story and how they lived. The Pharaoh. We see that he, we see what drives his action in verse 9. He's afraid of the Israelites. These Israelites have become far too numerous for us. And they might, well, if the war breaks out, they might join in with their enemies and overthrow us. He's afraid of the Israelites. He's afraid of men. With all his power, with all his resources, he fears men and what might happen in the future. And does that sound like most of us? Fear of other people. Fear of what might happen in the future. The Hebrew midwives, on the other hand, were different. They had plenty to fear um, in Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh ordered them directly, kill those boys. The Pharaoh's words were spoken as a man who determined their future. Their position in society, how many money they would make. Uh, wh- whether they would live or they would die. I'm sure they were afraid of Pharaoh because, after all, we find out that they do lie, don't they, in verse 19. They tell a lie that the boys lived because, well, the Hebrew women gave birth earlier. They were stronger, um, so they gave birth before they got there. But even more than they feared Pharaoh, this is true. They feared God. In verse 17, we're told that the midwives did not do what the king of Egypt asked them to do, ordered them to do, because they feared God. They feared God, though they didn't know exactly who God was and how great he is yet, right? Because that will be displayed later on. They had an inkling of an idea that son of Ray was not God, that God, somehow they knew um, that God was greater than him. Um, so they risk their lives and disobeyed Pharaoh. Of course, I want to make it clear, lying is wrong. 
And in this fallen world, actually, sometimes the choices that we're given are really lousy. It wasn't the lie, though, that God blessed. It's the fear of God that God blessed. And this is how we are to live in this lousy world, where things aren't always black and white. We are then to go, God is God, and I need to live my life in the light of him only. And I do not need to fear what is going on. I do not need to fear the people here. I do not need to fear the circumstances, what might happen to me. I need to fear God and live in front of him only. I suppose the easiest connection from this story to make is, I think, abortion. This is a complicated issue that deserves a whole sermon, but I might... I, I think I can say this much. Uh, what drives many people to abort uh, their babies is fear. Fear for the baby. Well, that they can't take care of this baby. That the baby might grow up in, a, in, in, in an environment that is really terrible. And that my fear for themselves, what might happen to me if I have this baby? What might happen to my future? You see, what this story tells us is that this is not our world. God is still God, and God is in control, that we ought to hope in God. However terrible this world is, however terrible the people are, God is still God. He is our hope. This is why we are able to have babies in this terrible world, because we hope in God and we entrust our children to him. And the church protects and nurtures these babies because we are God's signposts of hope in this world. Living in the presence of God in godly fear of him and not any other. If you did that, how would your life be different? I wonder what motivates your parenting. Is it fear? Fear of what might happen to them if they don't go to the best school. Fear of what might happen to them if they, don't, if they aren't able to purchase a house in Hong Kong. Do you fear God? How do you work? In your work, do you fear him in your workplace? How do you treat your parents, your friends, what you do in your spare time? We've gone through this series in First Peter. We live in this foreign world, in this alien world, and there are many things that will exert their power over us, but we have to remind ourselves that there is only Yahweh God that we worship and serve and love and fear. Actually, it's not just fear. Is it? As we will see later on in the rest of Exodus and the rest of the Bible. We don't just fear God, we love God. The God whose will is never thwarted. God whose will is never denied. Who works even through the darkest of evil to accomplish his, uh, accomplish his mission, willed his son to come to this world so that we might be saved. We come to love God, not just fear him, but that's another sermon for another day. God is God, and there is no other. His will is done. It is being done over this world. So whatever circumstance you are in, whatever you are going through, know that he is your God. He is working out his sovereign will through it all. So trust him and look to him. 
Even in the midst of this tough world, even in the midst of suffering, live in fear of him. Live to love him. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our view of you is too small. Enlarge our perspective. Enlarge our vision of who you are. Help us to be confident that you are God of this world, God of this church, God of our lives. And help us to give our lives over to you and live in fear and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.